0: everyone. We have Rob Norris with us today. Rob is a functional programmer, type level member, and community representative to the Scala Center. Let's get into the interview. So can you kind of tell me a little bit about uh, in Scala by the Bay 2015, you talked about programs as values can you talk about that concept and kind of where it came from?
1: Uh, yeah, so I, I think this is kind of one of the fundamental ideas in functional programming, and it's one of the things that we um, are not great at teaching people yet. Um, it's this idea that uh, computations themselves are values, and you can um, uh, values that you can construct and compose like data. Um, you can get part of the way there um, with functions as values. That's one of the things that you run into when you first learn uh, functional programming, but that's just one kind of computational effect. It's kind of a dependency injection effect. Um, but there are so many others and learning to use them and, and kind of and abstract over them is not easy, but it's, there's a gigantic payoff uh, when you do this. Um, I think it's kind of the next step after you um, After learning about, you know, immutability and using types effectively. And and these are just kind of baseline things that allow you to write code that composes. And then when you start talking about programs as values, that's where you really see this value of composition. Because you can write big programs um, by writing a bunch of little programs and sticking them together without this sort of compounding complexity that you get um, with sort of traditional programming like uh, like you would do in Java. when I started working on Doobie, this was kind of the big idea that I was trying to, to explain to people because it was pretty new uh, back then. These days, it's a very common way of thinking about things uh, in the Scala community. But back then, um, you know, talking about monads was still kind of controversial. The community uh, was just kind of getting into functional programming. Um so I spent a lot of that talk just kind of explaining this idea that program that Doobie programs are really just pieces of data that you compose together.
0: Yeah, and that's all done, at least with Doobie right now, with Fremonets.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um so uh the Freemonet is a it's a it's a really cool little data type. Um What it lets you do is um, it lets you build little languages for describing computations without tying yourself to any specific implementation. Um, It's a little bit like programming to the interface in sort of OO style. But the cool thing is that these um, computations compose monadically without any sort of extra effort on your part. Um, It just happens because of the structure of this free data type. And um, monadic composition is a good model for imperative programming. So it gives you a kind of a pure functional way to write traditional sort of procedural looking uh, software, which is ends up being a really useful thing to do. Um, So, I mean, the idea is you do some computation, you look at the result uh, to figure out what happens next. And that's what flat map does. And that's just kind of the fundamental thing that lets you stick monadic programs together. Um, So, So what you end up with is this piece of data that describes uh, some computation that you want to do. And then you later on, as a second step, you translate it into something you can actually execute. Um, And the structure of this free data type is such that the only thing you need to do is define how to execute sort of the little primitive operations you define. And the composition all happens for free. Um, so all the monadic machinery is stuff that you just never, ever have to write yourself. So it's a really nice way to do this kind of thing. Um, the problem with free, I mean, if you want to call it a problem um, is that this compositional model that you get is exactly monad. It's no more, no less. If you need something more powerful, like if you need a monad with exception handling or with concurrency, or if you want to interleave uh, an orthogonal set of operations like um, like database and logging, for instance, um, then you have to extend your little language to, uh, with constructors for, for accommodating these extra operations. And it, just, and it starts to get heavy. Um, isn't, there are other ways you can do it. You can actually compose, uh, compose these uh, little languages together, but it requires a lot of machinery to do it. Um, 47 Degrees actually had a library called Freestyle that, that tried to do this for you. Um, but it's a pretty complex piece of machinery, and and I think ultimately in Scala it's not worth it. Um, free is good in some little niches, and I think Duby is a pretty good niche for it. Um, but uh, these days, uh, tagless style uh, is is a more popular way of of doing uh, doing this kind of programming, and I, I think at least in Scala, ergonomically, it, it ends up being being a little better. I think.
0: Taking kind of a step back, uh, can you talk a little bit about Duby and what it is?
1: Oh, yeah, sure. <clears throat> um, so Duby is a pure functional layer that sits on top of JDBC. So what it does is it lets you write JDBC programs in a pure functional style. So database programs without side effects. Uh, so this means you have a program. You describe a computation that interacts with the database, and this program itself is a value that you can manipulate, like a you know like you like you manipulate integers or lists of integers or, or, or things like that. Um, so it it lets you write programs that are very easy to uh, to refactor. Basically, that's that's kind of the 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 big value proposition of functional programming is that everything's just a value. FP is really good at manipulating values. You don't have to worry about uh, uh, side effects. Uh, you can factor things out, uh, inline things without ever changing what your program does. So uh, it, it it takes away some of the misery of dealing with JDBC. Not all of it, but it takes away some of it. And and it's enough of a win that a lot of people uh, have ended up using it uh, instead of using raw JDBC. Mm-hmm. But it's you know it's ultimately it's a pretty low-level uh, library. It doesn't add that much on top of JDBC when compared with something like Slick or Quill uh, that gives you this really high-level uh, uh, high-level interface for writing uh, SQL statements, for instance. Uh, Duby doesn't do that. Uh, it's, it sits kind of at a level below that. where You write your own SQL. So the uh, the interactions you have with the database are a little more transparent. Uh, it, it sort of maps may do the operations map one-to-one with JDBC. Um, so there are some benefits to this, um, but then you, you, it doesn't have some of the sort of high level ergonomics that you get with, with libraries like, uh, like slick or quill. So, um, I mean, that's one of the really great things about Scala right now is that you have a lot of reasonable options for for doing things like this. So Duby just has, occupies one niche in there, but it's it's actually a pretty big landscape.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any plans for the future or is it kind of solid in where it's at right now?
1: Um, so it's pretty stable. It's not changing um, quickly or in big ways right now. But uh, there's still, you know, a bunch of things that we want to do. Um, the logging uh, is bad um, when things go go wrong; it's kind of hard to figure out. So we we definitely like, like to fix that. Um, and uh, it's also, you know, it's it's it would be very straightforward to do a version of Doobie that uses the and Taglist style. So instead of being free monad over JDBC, it's a set of tagless interfaces over JDBC. Um, and uh, so I've done some experiments there, and there's really nothing to it. I'm surprised nobody else has done it, actually. Um, the issue there is that it, it's a completely different programming model from the user's point of view, so there's no way to do it a, in a backward-compatible way. It would be more of a, a Doobie2 sort of thing. Um, Something I'm working on right now is uh, porting Doobie to Scala 3. Uh, And that's going pretty well, uh, actually. So uh, all the core stuff compiles. The the only thing that's that's kind of a a hangup is that I depend on Shapeless to do a lot of stuff for me. Um, And I experimented with doing that stuff using the native metaprogramming stuff uh, in Scala 3. Uh, it kind of works. It's kind of grim. Uh, I haven't quite decided what I want to do there. Uh, there is a version of Shapeless for Scala three called Shapeless three, and I'm going to try that out. And that might just do everything I want, and then I'll be done. Uh, or I may need to contribute something to Scala to to, to uh, Shapeless three or, or or figure something out. Um, but uh, I I think it's going to be ready for Scala three. By the time Scala three comes out, so I'm I'm pretty hopeful about that.
0: That's good. That's uh, hopefully the end of this year.
1: Yeah, that's the plan for for
0: Scala three. So you have Doobie, and then you have Skunk. Can you kind yeah. of talk about the difference between those?
1: Okay, so, um, so like I like I said a minute ago, the goal for JDBC, or the goal for Doobie was. To let you write JDBC programs without side effects. It, it, it aims really, really low. Um, and it works. And it works well enough that, that you know, a lot of people use it and, and it works well for them. But you're still using JDBC. Um, it's just, it's, it's not fun to use. And my goal is my goal with Skunk, I mean, the the underlying really fun foundational goal is to write a database library that's actually fun to use, that's a joy to use. Um, it's much harder to get there, uh, but it's really rewarding to work on. And, and I've had a ton of fun uh, working on it. Okay, so anyway, Skunk is a library for talking to Postgres. Uh, and it does this directly over the wire. There's no JDBC at all. So it just speaks the socket protocol straight to uh, uh, to Postgres. So... Um, and it's all pure functional Scala code, so it's built on top of SCodec and FS2, non-blocking, and you can use it concurrently. Like you can have parallel streams reading from different result sets, or you can stream from one database to another, and it just and it just works, and it's awesome. Um, and it, almost all of this comes for free, uh, just from using FS2. I'm really just standing on the shoulders of of some other just outstanding uh, pieces of software. Um, and it's just kind of, I, I kind of see this as a showcase for um, what you can do with FS2 and Cat's Effect and, and, and other existing stuff. One of the big advantages I think of, of Skunk is that because it only talks to Postgres, um, it understands the Postgres type system uh, really well. And the mappings of types between Scala and Postgres are very precise, Um, specifically, um, uh, for example, things like dates. Like dates and times are always a huge hassle through JDBC. Uh, uh, It's just really hard to get time zone stuff working, for example. Um, and it's very straightforward and very clear what's happening in Skunk. Just because I don't have to squeeze everything through JDBC uh, and, and introduce imprecision at that layer, uh, which, which to me is a big deal because I want my types to be meaningful. I don't want to have type issues at runtime. And that's something you really just can't avoid with JDBC. Um, another like, huge difference that's really important to me is that Skunk gives you really good error messages. So, you know, be it's just a layer on top of JDBC and in kind of a fundamental way, it really just doesn't have any idea of what you're doing. It just has this, it's just this layer that lets you write JDBC and it's executing those instructions that you provide. So if something goes wrong, it doesn't have a lot of context that, can, that it can give you uh, as part of an error message. Um, but on the other hand, Skunk models... Interactions like exactly the way Postgres likes you to think about them, and it has a ton of context. So um, when something goes wrong, it can tell you, you know, what the statement was and where it was defined in your code, and what the arguments were and where the arguments were provided in your code, uh, what the argument types were, um, and, and so on. So, and I'm, you know, I'm really proud of this. I'm using Skunk at work right now, and to, to prototype some stuff. And the error messages are just a lifesaver. Every time one of them scrolls past, there's just this wall of flame that's, that's attached to it. And uh, it just makes me smile every time I see one. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on the right path there.
0: Yeah, that's really good. I've seen a lot of people compare it to Rust compiler messages.
1: Yes, I, I am very inspired there by, uh, by Rust. And some of the custom error messages that people have worked on for Rust, and also by uh, the Unison language. So I, uh, uh, their error messages are, are really good too, and they use color and they use emojis and stuff. So um, I, I felt kind of empowered to go off <laughs> to go off on that tangent without being uh, accused of of doing something uh, super weird. Um, so I'm I'm really happy about that. Um, so another big difference uh, is that uh, Gunk has written tagless style rather than using free, um, which I think is mostly a win. Uh, one, of the, one of the issues with that is that um, like, if you're inside a transaction and you're doing some database stuff and then you do some non-database stuff that's interleaved in uh, and the transaction fails, then it's as if the database stuff has never happened. But the other non-database things that you've done have, have definitely happened, and they're not going to get they're not going to get undone when the transaction rolls back. So there's some subtlety to the programming model in um, uh, with Skunk that doesn't exist with Doobie. But the ergonomics are so much better that I think it's kind of worth it. Um, it's it's kind of a question mark. We'll see how that how that ends up in practice. Um, but I am I'm optimistic about that. But I should say, actually, I'm, I'm kind of—it's uh, amusing to me, at least. Um, I'm actually using the free monad and the skunk code base in uh, the testing code. So one of the things that's, that's super cool about free is that you can use it to model coroutines. So where you have a program and it runs for a little while and it yields a value or it performs some 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 action and then it halts, and then someone else can do some work for a while and then you can resume the computation. Uh, the other computation that can run for a while uh, and uh, and do some more work and and then halt and you can kind of go back and forth and you can you can you can interleave your programs so what this lets you do is you you, it lets you write programs in very direct monadic style but when you run them their actions are actually interleaved in a deterministic way so um, i'm using this to simulate uh, really weird error conditions uh, that are hard to provoke from a real database server Um, so it it lets, me, uh, it lets me write tests for things that I otherwise wouldn't be able to, to write tests for because I'm simulating a Postgres backend uh, using a little language written with the free monad. So uh, I, I kind of want to give a talk about that about this because it's a super powerful uh, uh, thing to be able to do. Yeah, free kind of got a bad rap, I think, after, after people got way into it and found it was too complicated and then switched to tagless. It's still really cool for a
0: lot of, for a lot of cases, I think. Yeah, I think the boilerplate for free was what kind of got me when I first had started. I just started fooling around with it, and it was a lot to do a little.
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure, and uh, and and that's and that's still that's still an issue. But uh, I, I think it, there are some narrow use cases where it's still I think the best thing to use. So there's a conference talk in there somewhere. <laughs> I don't want people to forget about free because I, I still love it.
0: So are there future plans for Skunk then? Is there like an idea of when it's ready?
1: Um, it's very close. Um, people are using it now. I'm using it now. Um, and it's really mostly a matter of getting the documentation wrapped up before i can say okay you know go out and use it i kind of i need to use it on a project myself to gain some confidence that it it works the way i want um but but i think we're real close and and if people who are listening want to give it a try uh, please do and uh, uh just be very uh all i ask is that you'd be generous with your feedback and open issues and and, and let me know how it's going because it's still early enough that that I can make uh, changes if if we find problems without affecting a lot of users.
0: Awesome! I'll make sure we get a link on that too. Yep.
1: Oh, also, I should I should note that um, uh, Gabriel Volpe has a has a book, um, Practical FP in Scala. I think it's called, <laughs> um, and uh, it's about writing programs in Tagless style, uh, and he uses Skunk uh, in his examples. So. Um, uh, it's a it's a cool book, and if you want to see uh, a way you can use it with other you know in, as part of a bigger program that's a that's a good place to look
0: yeah it's it's definitely an amazing book. it's actually literally right next to me right now
1: <laughs>
0: awesome so you've got Doobie, you've got skunk uh, what about Natchez?
1: Um, so as I mentioned, one of the, one of the issues with uh, Doobie is that it, the logging is not very good. It's just really hard to figure out what what is going on when, when something goes wrong. Um, and when I started looking at, at, at doing Skunk, I was, I, I started thinking more, sort of more deeply about, about what I really want in terms of diagnostics. Um you, you know when so so when something goes wrong, you know skunk has a lot of context that it provides in uh, in the error messages uh, for the exceptions that it raises, but it doesn't even show you a stack trace. All this all the uh, uh, all the skunk exceptions extend without stack trace or whatever that interface is called, because the stack trace, when you're running in, uh, in IO is just it's it's total nonsense. Um, it just shows you the state of the state machine that's executing your IO action. It doesn't provide you anything that that has any diagnostic value. Um, I should note that that is a lot better uh, in the upcoming release of Cats. They've added some some augmentation to the uh, stack trace generation so that you get more information about you know where where flat maps are are applied, which is really what you want to know. Um, but it's still not great. Um, I, I, I think you know, it, stack traces, even with this augment, augmentation, uh, are are not exactly what I want to see. Um, you know, in async code, uh, your computation is chopped up and smeared across a bunch of threads. So um, this idea of a thread stack isn't super useful. Um, and it's even worse when you have a distributed. Uh, computation because your your computation is smeared out across a bunch of computers, so you can kind of do this with logs, the standard logging and log aggregation, where you have a some like a correlation ID that you pass around and you include it in your log messages, and then you know you see something went wrong, you look at the correlation ID, and then you can search and grep out that ID, um, and you get all the trace log you know trace messages from that you know web request or whatever. Um, but computations are not. Really, logically, they're not linear like that. They're more like trees. You have subroutines that return. Uh, you have subcomputations. And you, uh, you lose that structure when you just spew out a log because you know logs are lists. They're not trees. So what I decided, what I, decided I really wanted was distributed tracing. Um, and when you use distributed tracing, your log is actually a tree. Which models your computations more closely. So I started looking into tracing, um, and there are a lot of providers out there. Uh, So there's uh, Jaeger, um, and uh, oh gosh, I'm having a hard time remembering. Uh, Lightstep, um, uh, Honeycomb uh, is the one that I'm really excited about, uh, and lots of other providers. Uh, uh, that, that will collect your trace information and store it for you, and let you let you examine it. And there are a number of uh, open source uh, open source APIs that aim to abstract over these backends. Uh, these APIs are all very imperative programming oriented, uh, like the one for, the ones for Java. Uh, use thread locals to store information about the current trace, which, of course, doesn't work if you're, if you're doing uh, async programming. Uh, that gets chopped up across a bunch of threads. Um, so there wasn't a good way to do it uh, in Scala. Um, there was a, uh, the beginnings of a library called pure tracing. Uh, that was a really good start. And so I looked at that and decided, okay, I want to do something like that. But I just kind of went off on my own because I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was going to make some giant changes. So I just said, I'll just do my own thing, Um, uh, even though it it may merge back into pure tracing at some point. Um, In any case, that's what Natchez is. It's a a library that that, uh, lets you abstract over these abstraction libraries that abstract over, uh, over these tracing backends. And it gives you a computational effect called trace. Uh, and if you constrain your effect to the trace type, then you can uh, uh, add things to the current trace. You can create a subtrace. Uh, you can get uh, information out of the trace that you can pass forward when you make a call to another server so that the trace will be continued uh, on the other computer. Uh, and it works. Uh, and. Uh, it, it just hasn't gotten a lot of use yet. Uh, there are some people who are using it uh, who report that it works. Um, I am just starting to use it myself, so I'll, I'll uh, uh, certainly run into problems and, and, and have things to fix. I think one of the issues is that the ground it's built on is extremely unstable. Um, the, these APIs, there's open tracing and open census and a new one called open Telemetry mm-hmm. uh, that is supposed to uh, I, it's supposed to abstract over open census and open tracing. Um, and the libraries, uh, for specific backends depend on specific versions of these, uh, of of these, uh, abstractions. And it's just, it's, it's an absolute mess and it's not fun to work on at all. So really all I'm, all I'm worried about personally is making it work for Honeycomb and their other contributors who are working on the other backends right
0: now. Mm -hmm. We've gotten to working with Jaeger, uh, and we've also... Been working a little bit with Honeycomb.
1: Oh, okay. So you are using Natchez? Yeah. Oh, well, wow, awesome. <laughs> That's very good. That's good to know.
0: Yeah, we uh we actually tried building our own and then uh they all converged on to be the exact same structure that you had created. And then we realized that we wasted two weeks.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean I ultimately there's not much to it and it is just a matter of time before somebody uh before somebody wrote it down.
0: Yeah, it's super useful.
1: Cool, cool, yeah. It's, uh, I'm still a little worried about requiring people to use uh, distributed tracing when they use Skunk. So right now, if you use Skunk, there's a trace, there's a trace constraint on the effect when you can construct a database uh, session. So um, your choices are to either use a tracing backend or use a tracer that uh, sort of a degenerate tracer that, that that turns into that turns into logging. It just logs a blob of JSON for you, uh, or to have no tracing at all. Uh, there's not really an intermediate where you can have traditional logging right now. So I'm a little nervous about that, and I'm, that's something that I've, I've just got to see how it shakes out to see whether it's it's actually a problem or not.
0: Yeah, I mean, if anything, I think it kind of brings these distributed problems into the space, at least, and says, hey, you you can solve it this way. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, a lot of us ignored it until we really needed it. And when you have 200 some services and you can't figure out where it died, it starts getting into a problem.
1: Right, right, right. That's the goal. Well, I'm encouraged to hear that, that it's worked for you. We should talk about it some more.
0: Yeah. So you, uh, you covered essentially the the database space at least for sql you've got tracing how are you feeling about dotty right now we're coming up in like what four months we got about until it's supposed to release that's
1: uh that's the plan yeah um i'm i'm really excited about it actually um i I think uh for For a really long time, Scala has been—you know—at first it was a better Java, right? And and it it, it sort of forked out of Java, and and uh, it's gradually been evolving uh, into its own thing. And you know, now people think of it as kind of a better Java and kind of a slightly weird Haskell. Um, But with Scala three, I think it really is its own thing. It, It really breaks away from. From uh, uh, from sort of traditional object oriented stuff and uh, and away from sort of traditional uh, uh, pure functional stuff. It's really its own thing, and it's it's super exciting. And I think it's I, I mean I think it's really cool for Martin because he spent so much time uh, you know uh, developing this language and figuring out where it's going to go and 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 to finally have something that really stands on its own is 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 a gigantic achievement. So I just feel good sort of generally about the language. Um, but I'm super excited about a lot of individual features, too. Um, the GADT support is just jaw-dropping. Um, there was a, a, a talk uh, at uh, last summer, I think, at, at uh, the type-level summit uh, that was uh, going on with uh, uh, Scala Days in Lausanne. Uh, about GADTs uh, in Dotty, And if you, haven't, if you haven't watched that, you should. It's just amazing. Um, so that's really cool. There are things like match types, where I don't know what I would use them for, but they look cool, and I'm excited about figuring that out. Um, singleton operations, a lot of the stuff that you you can do with um, uh, refined and singleton ops now is built into the language, which is super cool. Um, and even metaprogramming uh, in Doty. Um I, I have been very, very down on metaprogramming in Scala two because the the interface, the macro interface, uh is just so low level and and very very hard to discover and 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 uh uh it just al- has always had kind of a hacky feel to me. Um but the metaprogramming in Scala three is 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 very well thought out and 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 really cool and I, I look forward to playing with that.
0: Awesome. Yeah. yeah, there's there is a boatload of features I did not know about when I was kind of going through the documentation.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 really huge. And the fact that they've done it um without breaking much compatibility with Scala 2 is is pretty amazing to me.
0: So doing another logical jump forward, uh let's talk about where you work. Uh I think that's uh a pretty neat and interesting space
1: yeah um yeah i work at the gemini observatory so uh it is an international uh consortium it's it's uh it, it, and it's also uh one of the national observatories for the united states uh we have two uh, eight and a half meter telescopes one of them is in uh hawaii on mauna kea and one of them is in chile Uh, on a a mountain called Cerro Pachon in uh, uh, north-central Chile. Uh, And the software that I work on is uh, sort of the front-end software that uh, scientists use to uh, design their science programs uh, and and, uh, specify what they want the telescope to do, uh, as well as the software that... uh, Uh, staff astronomers use to execute these programs uh, on the telescope. So it's kind of like a, um, uh, in a way, it's kind of like a big distributed IDE uh, that used to define uh, science programs that are kind of like computer programs. And ultimately they get compiled down to instructions that move motors and stuff uh, on the telescope and collect data. So uh, it's, it's super interesting. I really enjoy it. We're using uh, all, uh, it was, it was all Java at first, and uh, we've switched to Scala maybe eight years ago, uh, so we've been doing Scala for a long time, and now the stuff we're writing is uh, pure functional, tagless, type-level style uh, Scala, and it's it's really super fun. I enjoy it.
0: That's great. Has a lot of the ideas for like the open source that you've needed, has that come from there, or has it just been self-interest?
1: Uh, kind of a mixture of both. Um, the, the database thing is kind of an obsession of mine. I've I've written. I, I you know, Doobie is like the fifth of these things that I've written. It's just the only one I ever it was ever good enough for to to tell people. Okay, maybe you could try to try to use it. Um, so that's just kind of an ongoing obsession. But a, a lot of these things. Uh, uh, like Natchez, for instance, and I have I have a little I have a little telnet library that I wrote, and, and there there are a lot of little things that I've worked on uh, that uh, I've ended up doing uh, because of because of work, and you know we're we're very um, we're very focused on this idea that we don't want to own a lot of generic code uh, if we if we write something it's generic, we try and contribute it to a library someplace so that our code is, is focused on astronomy and not on, you know, distributed tracing, for instance. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, we, so that, that's, that's kind of the way we think about things, and, and all of us do this. So, uh, you know, Carlos Kuros is, is one of my uh, uh, colleagues, and he uh, has some open source libraries that he works on uh, as well that are primarily for use at Gemini, but they're generic. So he's open sourced them or, or push stuff up to, to, uh, to type level libraries typically. So, so yeah, kind of a
0: mixture. Awesome. So going on a more of a personal level, what do you do outside of programming?
1: (laughs) Well, um, I, uh, these days with the pandemic and not being able to do anything, mostly what I do is, is, uh, uh, play with my six year old and uh uh and I've been getting back into cooking you know I've been I've been doing learning how to do Chinese cooking which is which is uh very weird and complicated and I'm enjoying learning how to do that and I've been doing some barbecuing and that kind of thing. Um but we're we're kind of stuck around the house mostly. Um looking forward to getting back to the climbing gym and, and uh going bouldering with uh with my daughter. We we used to do that a lot and, and, and this and miss doing that. But these days, even the parks are too crowded to to uh, to get out and climb. So we're kind of stuck at home for the time being. How long have you been climbing? Oh, gosh. Um, since 1992, I guess. Yeah. 1991, 92, something like that. Yeah. So I've been climbing for a long time off and on. And I've taken some long breaks. But um, it's it's something that I really enjoy, and it's funny that you know there are lots and lots of programmers who enjoy programming too, uh, or programmers sorry who, 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 who programmers who enjoy climbing, and um, I, I think there's uh, there's something similar about the zone that you get in with your pro- when you're programming and the zone that you get in when you're when you're climbing. Um, it's kind of an optimization problem and. Uh, Finesse and technique uh, and and end up being really important. And there's a kind of a there's a kind of beauty that you're searching for when you're doing both things. And, and I, I don't know. That's my theory about why it applies to so many people, but I think about half the programmers I know are also rock climbers.
0: I was actually just going to bring up the same thing. <laughs> what was your first introduction to programming?
1: Oh gosh. I went to <clears throat> when I was when I was little when I was 10 I think I went to a computer camp so this was before anyone had like personal computers So I went to a computer camp at the university where my dad worked um and we uh we got to like do punch cards (laughs) and uh 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 Learn how to write very, you know, very like three line programs because that's about as much as you can do on punch cards without making an error when you're ten years old. Um, and uh, you know, I got to use a uh, uh, teletype. That was like the big thing. Was like uh, you could interact with the computer with a teletype. And and uh, so we played. Uh, I remember playing the uh, Colossal Cave Adventure in 1979 uh, on a teletype and and that was uh, that was kind of what got me hooked, actually. Uh, just the the wonder of it that uh, there's some piece of software back there um, that's creating this world for me. And it's convincing. Uh, I, I just uh, I was just really blown away by that.
0: How did that kind of move forward with your programming background? Did you keep with it? Did you just pick it back up in school? Did you?
1: Uh, well, I, so I went to a few of these computer camps and the, that was just at the time that personal computers were, were, were coming out, uh, and were affordable. So the university bought like 300 TRS 80s and had them all set up in a lab. So in subsequent years, I spent a lot of time on a TRS 80 writing basic programs. Um, and, uh, I guess when I was 11 or 12, my dad bought me one. My parents bought me one, Uh, and there was just no stopping at that point. Uh, I I sat in front of that computer uh, and uh, made it do whatever I wanted, and that's what I did through my whole time in junior high and high school. Uh, And uh, uh, and just because it was super fun, you know, I never had any. thoughts of of doing it for a living. I mean, at that age you don't you don't think about getting a job. So uh it, it kind of started there and when I got to college I did linguistics. I don't have a computer science degree. I did linguistics and and some some uh computational stuff, some old kind of old style lispy AI stuff. Uh, uh you know 80s style AI that has nothing to no similarity with what people are doing now. Uh, and uh, I was just lucky enough to that that was enough to get a programming job uh, when I got out of college and, and uh, uh, it's just kind of been uh, uh, free sailing from there.
0: Where did you start f p at
1: I think that was also in college or also in high school actually. <clears throat> My dad bought me a book. Douglas Hofstadter' book called "Metamagical Themas," which was a collection of his um, a collection of his columns from Scientific American. He wrote the mathematical games column for for a while, and there was a series about Lisp um, and about thinking recursively. And that's something that Hofstadter has is is has always been been really uh, interested in and, and has written a lot about. Um, and I had never heard about it, and 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 uh, didn't know anything about it, so I found this thing's really fascinating, and uh, tried to do things with recursion uh, in Basic, which didn't really work, and and in Pascal, which I at, at school, which actually did work, which I was pretty pretty excited about. And then when I got to to uh, college, uh, I had access to a Lisp compiler, so I, I started doing a lot of, I started doing Lisp there. Um, and then uh, I actually uh, so so they had some uh, Xerox list machines there and I got permission to to use one of those and uh, i I actually they there were there were a few in storage and I uh, appropriated one and took it to my uh, dorm room and actually and actually had a list machine in my uh, in my dorm for a while um, I'm not sure anyone uh, ever found out that I did that. So so anyway, I've been doing FP for a long time. I th- but honestly, I think really I didn't quite grok the big ideas of, of FP until I, until I did a little bit of Haskell um, uh, and, and, and got an understanding of types and, and, and what, what pure FP uh, was all about. So it's really just, you know, in the last five or ten years that I've, uh, that I've felt like I've, I've uh, really understood what it is that I'm trying to do.
0: Did that align with when you started Scala as well?
1: Kind of, yeah. Um, I, I learned a little bit of Haskell before I started with Scala, and I found that um, learning Haskell kind of helped me understand how Haskell. Learning Haskell kind of let me understand the type class pattern in Scala because it's kind of weird, and the and the type class pattern in Scala kind of helped me understand how Haskell works um, because it's so much it's so much more. Um, explicit in the surface syntax in scala at least the way we do it now um so um there was sort of a a symbiosis between scala and haskell uh that sort of helped me get oriented to this way of thinking so so yeah it did kind of correspond with that it didn't haskell didn't really click until i uh, had done scala for a while which is kind of weird but but that's that's how it went for me
0: kind of bouncing away from programming again did you, do you have any books or movies that you have kind of as your favorites <laughs> or your things you go back to?
1: Oh my gosh. I, I'm a, uh, book wise. I'm a huge, I'm a big Cormac McCarthy fan. So I, I read most of his books and, and they're, they're, they're hard to read and really dark. And, and, uh, uh but for some reason I, I, uh, I really enjoy them. Um, uh, the right, the, the, just, just the, 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 the craft of writing is so refined. I, I, I really enjoy those. And then I've, I've recently read all of Anne Leckie's uh, books, uh, The uh, Ancillary Justice and, and, uh, and that series. And I had never read much uh, sci-fi before. And I, I was really blown away by that series of books. I, I think they avoid making a lot of the, <laughs> the mistakes that a lot of sci-fi books make. Um, she actually knows how to end a story, which is uh, which is encouraging. Um, movies, gosh, I don't know. I'm gonna let, I'm 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 gonna sk- I'm gonna skip that one. I can't. It's gonna take me a while to search for <laughs> the search for movies in my head that I that I could recommend.
0: That's all good. Uh, so, bouncing back to kind of maybe it's not technology. Maybe it's something else. What have you been learning lately?
1: What have I been learning lately? Um, well, tech wise, um, I've been learning, I've been learning a little bit about cloud computing, um, which, which is kind of, it's kind of embarrassing, but it's a blind spot for me. Um, we have not been able to do any cloud-based stuff, uh, at work uh, until recently because the internet connections from the telescopes to the internet we were so uh, unreliable because the telescopes are on the top of mountains and the base facilities, uh, you know, one of them is on an island in the Pacific and one of them uh, is is uh, on the beach in Chile. So it hasn't been until really this year that those Internet services have been reliable enough for us to do um, to do any cloud based stuff. So, you know, I've been learning about deploying stuff to Heroku and that's pretty (laughs) that's pretty exciting for me. and then, uh, you know, non-technology-wise, I'm 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 still kind of chipping away at, at very basic category theory. It's I've found it to be really helpful in understanding uh, bits and pieces, at least of of uh, of functional programming, and it, it kind of gives me a way to to look at things that are not obviously the same and 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 see them as the same in some way, which uh, which is always nice. I mean, it's programming, I don't know, like, like basically any other, any other activity that requires thought um, has a lot to do with pattern formation. You know, is it, are these things, how can you see these things as being the same? And the and, uh, category theory is, is helpful for that, but it's really, really hard. It gets so abstract so fast um, that, uh, that I, I, I just have to go really, really, really slow. So I'm still chipping away at that. And if I was able to take a year off, maybe I could finish a category theory book, but it may take the rest of my life at this point.
0: Well, if there's one subject that you think everyone should maybe look into or do some research on, what do you think it would be?
1: Oh my gosh. So I I think in terms of programming, um, the the idea that has been uh, sort of the most sort of the most profound idea uh, to me has been uh, parametricity. Um, uh, this idea that uh, when you have uh, parameterized types, like the type of the identity function, for instance, for all a, uh, a, a to A, um, you can uh, just look at the type, and just based on the type, you can tell a lot of things about what a value of that type uh, means, uh, what what values that it uh, uh, that it could take on. Uh, so the ID the identity function, for instance, has exactly one implementation. There's only one way to write it. Um, and uh, in Scala, certain conditions have to hold before uh before uh parametricity uh holds uh so there are things that you can't do uh and limiting yourself to the slice of the language uh that preserves parametricity ends up being a really cool thing uh, it ends up uh giving you uh much more composition compositionality than you would get uh, otherwise um so it's a It's kind of a hard subject. Um, There's a a paper by Philip Wadler called Theorems for Free that uh, is one of the papers that everybody refers to, but very few people um, are actually able to read the whole thing and understand it. Um, I am among them. I I can't make much sense of it uh, beyond the big ideas. Uh, But there is enough there. And in talks, you can find that you can pick up the basic idea and get some benefits from it. So uh, it's kind of a long way around to saying, uh, look into parametricity. If you're a scholar programmer, it's a really interesting idea.
0: I definitely agree there. That's actually a paper I had on my desk from an undergrad. And I think it stayed there for like 10 years.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's hard. I mean, you can, you can say, yes, you know, there, there's a, identifying the free theorems that you get from a type um, is not obvious. You can look at a type and say, okay, well, based on the type, you know, if I have a type that says list, list of a to int, I can tell you the only thing that can possibly matter is the length of the list. So it's just a function of the length of the list uh, to an int. And uh, that's a pretty uh, startling statement uh, uh, for kind of a, you know, a Java programmer, for instance. You give me a list of anything, and the only thing that matters is the length of the list. Um, but that's true under parametricity. And uh, uh, but taking that type signature and deriving that free theorem from it is is uh, is not obvious. I don't know how to
0: do it yet. I've heard you kind of say follow the types quite a lot, and I think that kind mm-hmm. of applies to parametricity one hundred percent.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, because you. Um, uh, when you program this way, your types are not lying to you. Um, the, the types are accurate, and, and you can push stuff around and uh, with a great deal of confidence. Yep, for sure.
0: Thank you, Rob. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Yeah, it's been fantastic. I really enjoyed it.
0: Awesome. Thank you.